Fangoria has been at it for over 40 years and is better than ever. This gorgeous magazine is highly collectible and delivered right to your door four times a year, with each issue filled to the brim with articles exploring every nook and cranny of genre filmmaking past, present, and future, with all the most exciting journalists, filmmakers, and horror know-it-alls to guide the way, including, from time to time, your intrepid KingCast hosts. This high-quality writing will only ever appear within the physical pages of the magazine, so if you want to join in on the fun, you'll need to subscribe. And to do that, all you got to do is head on over to Fangoria.com and sign up. It may be a new year, but the promo code hasn't changed. If you use the code KINGCAST to check out, you'll save a whopping, astronomical, massive 25% off your subscription. Again, that's KINGCAST at checkout to save 25% off. Now, with all that said, let's get on with the show. Hi, my name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Bad love, bad love. You guys wanna go see a dead body? Well, sometimes, that is better. Hello and welcome back to the KingCast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. I'm Eric Vespi. And I'm Scott Wampler. And we are your hosts. This is our first episode of 2024. We need to bring out the poppers and the fireworks. Well, we knew that uh, if we were going to come back and ring in the new year in style, we needed to have a banger of a guest to do that with. So we called in the big guns. Uh, making his triumphant return to the KingCast stage as a star multiple Stephen King adaptations, two of which we can safely say are top tier, and the other is Dreamcatcher, uh, <laughs> which, is, <laughs> which is fascinating in its own right, I might, might add, and, and has led to some some of our most popular episodes, by the way. Yes. Um, the, la- the last time he was on the show, we focused on his work in Frank Darabont's The Mist. Uh, this time we're going to focus on his other Fantastic King adaptation, 1922, the often overlooked tale of guilt and insanity that debuted on Netflix in 2017. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the one and only Mr. Thomas Jane. Hey, yes. Hey, Eric. hey, Scott. Sir, lovely to have you back. Hey, thanks. It's good to be here winding down before the new year begins. Yeah, yeah. This will be released right after, but we are recording uh, in between Christmas and New Year's. So I, I have to ask, how was your, how was your Christmas? Did you get anything cool? Tell me what, what's the best present you got? Oh my gosh. Um, somebody sent me a Zippo lighter, a fan. Her, her name's Joan. And uh, she sent me um, a Dave Stevens, Betty Page Zippo Ooh. lighter. So nice. it's, it's got, it's got a really beautiful print of, uh, of Dave Stevens, Betty Page. Oh, and awesome. I looked that up. If you've never uh, seen it, you'll be um, instantly know why I like it so much. Yeah, <laughs> it's Stevens Rocketeer, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. That's right. Um, yeah, we were uh, awesome artist. Yeah, we were old pals. You know, Dave and I um, got to know each other really well, and uh, so it was really tough when he died. Uh, it was you know, yeah, when, when your friends start, you know dropping out it's um it's it's a wake up you know you really start to contemplate sort of what you're doing with your life and uh, what it all means you know why be friends with anybody if they're all gonna die (laughs) (laughs) damn yeah (laughs) right right you know so that was a tough one i always have a soft spot in my heart for dave stevens just out of curiosity how do you feel about aging 
Yeah, it's, so ongoing, much. it's an ongoing question, right? Like every right. time, like now I'm looking in the mirror, I'm like, am I losing more hair? You know, <laughs> is it, is it just, how come my hair gets greasier faster? It must be, <laughs> I have less of it, you know? <laughs> and uh, that sucks. And, and, but I found if I box, okay. Because yeah, uh-huh. aging sucks, dude. And it didn't really hit me until I was like 44 or 45, mm. you know, where I really felt like, oh, I'm breaking down, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you have little hints of that beforehand. Um, you know, like your knees pop in a funny way and you go, oh, I never felt that before. It's things like that, little glimpses, right, along right. the way. And then I hit 44 and there was a, something started creaking in a way that, I couldn't get to go away, you know, like a tendon or something. And uh-huh. like, oh, that's dying. Wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah. you, start, you feel it in your body, you know. So I I started boxing and um, I found that that's a fantastic, you know, uh, limbering. Uh, it keeps me lubricated. <laughs> right. You know, nice. and I feel better. I feel a lot better when I'm boxing as, as opposed to when I'm not. So I got a mm. buddy. We box three times a week. You know, um, I, I highly recommend anybody who's, you know, on the on the uh, <laughs> treadmill to um, to get something like that going, you know, just as a general routine. When I don't do it, I feel it kind of I really feel like, oh, my God, I'm getting old. But when I do do it, I can kind of pretend that I'm not I feel great. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I'm well, only yeah, a few. I'm only a few years out from that 44 year, 45 year mark that you're talking about. And one thing that I've noticed is that sometimes I'll just wake up and I'll have like a weird pain in a part of my body. Right. Sure. And it's, <laughs> so you're like uh, uh, immediately, I'm panicking. I'm like, well, it's obviously this is cancer or something. Oh, horrible. it's death. It's death knocking. Yeah. It's death tickling <laughs> yeah. at the door. She's just. And then uh, the next day when I wake up, it'll just be gone as mysteriously as it appeared. Huh. Yeah. But she will be back. Don't worry. Um, I've noticed that I've hit. I mean, listen. You you start to notice, and I thinking. I think a lot of these uh, like online personalities, the TikTok stars, the YouTube stars, and all that, they're starting to hit that first wave that we hit in our like late twenties, early thirties, where you're like, oh, the world maybe isn't being made for me anymore right right. uh and i'm seeing that turned into like kind of an existential thing amongst the the youth who thought that the that they were going to be uh the main focus of everything forever but it's weird hitting when you hit 40 and i'm in my early 40s now and when you hit that that era you like that you get now two generations of this world isn't made for me anymore Right. Mm-hmm. And, and it, I don't know, there's something about it where I get, I can see how midlife crises start. Cause you're just like, well, where do I fit into this, this Absolutely. world? You know, I, I don't know. I can't hang with the, with the, the no cap kids these days and whatnot, you know, it's like none, none of that makes any sense to me. Everything's alien to me beyond, Absolutely. you know, what's America right? has not been built for second acts as they say. <laughs> and that, and that's so true. I mean, we're, we're a youth oriented culture. You know, I like spending more time over in France because Europeans are much more sort of all encompassing. They, Mm. they you you can be, have a vibrant, you know, uh, life and career up at well into old age, whereas it's a little more difficult here. You know, things move so fast that, um, yeah, you know, I guess the good news for me was I never really tried to be sort of swinging with the 
swinging kids in that time. Although I certainly do felt, do feel the, uh, the parade. It's like, you guys are about the same age as John Lennon when he wrote, I'm just watching the wheels go round and round. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. I love to watch them roll. Yeah. Um, that's, uh, that's, you know, that I think that's the most healthiest attitude you can get. Yeah. Yeah. No, there's, there's something nice about getting a little older and you just get more comfortable and your skin, you, at least you, at least I felt this way where it's like a lot of shit that would, you know, get piss you off a little bit more in your twenties and thirties. Mm-hmm. Now yep. you're just like, well, nothing I can do about it. You know? So, uh, you, I think that you can, uh, when you hit this age, you embrace one or the other, you either, hate everybody and everything and become the cranky old man or you just go well you know whatever the hell just you know at a certain point let it wash over you yeah anyway, just because i'm me and i'm happy being me or whatever you know you got a little bit of wisdom that no one wants to listen to <laughs> <That's true>. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what, man. what kind of old man do you think you'll be tom um i'm probably well i'm i'm not gonna be a drunk old man that's what sure. I'm not going to do, you know, because I've seen that and that looks really painful yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, and getting old hard enough as it is. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I do, I, I've been collecting when I go to flea markets, um, you know, especially, um, in France or some fun European joint, I look for old paintings. It's amazing the collection of unknown painters that have been painting throughout mm. the centuries, right? The decades, the years, the century, incredible stuff. They even have a giant book for, for unknown painters. So when you're in one of these antique stores, looking at all these beautiful original oil paintings that have, that are caked with that kind of age that you can only get that one way. Right. Um, They've got a giant book and you can look up the name of that painter. If you like, I like that guy. Who is that? And there's a fat dictionary sized book. You can look him up in little tiny print. It'll say who he was, when he lived and when he painted anything else interesting about the guy. So I collect those from time to time and I put them away in my garage. And my idea is that when I get to be an old man, I'm going to take out those paintings and I'm going to paint over them. I'm going to add to them. I'm going to add my life to those old paintings, you know, right. Right. whatever that might be. Like, you know, you might, uh, I might paint a, you know, a, a, a horseshoe crab <laughs> in, in the corner of a, you know, of a Dutch woman drawing water, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and that's, that's my idea of a, of a good time when I'm an old man. <laughs> oh, well, you're going to need a hobby for sure. All right. And that, that'll keep you busy. Uh, I, I did like picture when you're talking about how uh, how you're into boxing now. I'm like, well, I could totally see Tom Jane turn into like a Burgess Meredith, just like barking at the the the, the youth, you know, trying to that be you know, get him up, get up and going, and you know, yeah. fighting. There's only I think one. You got a little Burgess Meredith, Meredith in you, is what I'm saying. So. <laughs> well, I take that as a huge compliment. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just lighting a pipe here as we as we speak. So. Oh, I would expect nothing less. So um, you mentioned you mentioned before we get to the Stephen King stuff. You mentioned you had a little country house over in France, and I'm curious what I'm curious what a day is like for you while you're you're living over there. Are you just reading, chilling on the porch, relaxing? Are you are you doing like farm chores? Mm, What's going on over there? Mm. 
little bit about all of that. Yeah. Plus, where I'm situated, there in about t- a ten minute drive in any direction, you'll find a little medieval village. And in that village could be a butcher who all locally farmed uh, uh-huh. stuff that gets dropped off every morning. There'll be um, a, a, a bouche, what do they call it? A boulangerie mm-hmm. uh, where you get your bread, your fresh French bread. Mm-hmm. Um, there'll be a little cheese store. There'll be, you know, there's a foie gras. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, these people love to live. They shut down every day. They show up for work about 10 and then about, 12.30, they shut down and go home and eat lunch. They come uh-huh. back, they reopen about 2, and they work for another few hours, and then they go and um, relax and enjoy an aperitif. Um, <laughs> you know, of course, the farmers are always working, and, and we're surrounded by vineyards and strawberries. The ground where we're at is really good for growing strawberries. There's a lot of silica in the water and the earth. Mm. And, um, so the strawberries are like superb i mean they're either you're like oh that's what a strawberry should taste like mm. wow got it um i've got uh let's see what well, i took my parents off to see uh they have um, a 17th century farm where they or it's kind of like a farm factory where they make nut oil <laughs> <laughs> okay they make nut oil out of almonds this is just yeah. you know happens yeah. like 20 minutes from the house and my mom's and dad are both into that kind of old, like they like seeing the old, like how was it done in the old days? And this is sort of a uh, a factory that's still in operation and has been for like 200 years. Um, so that was really fun. There's also a, a half an hour away uh, from me is a um, sturgeon farm where you can, where they, where they make the best caviar I've ever had. Um, you know, and that, that was a treat because my mom had never had caviar and I was like, Oh my God, well, we have to remedy that right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so we did that. The best thing about it is the food and the cooking, you know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so me my mom, my daughter, we all took turns sort of concocting these, you know, these dishes. I've got truffles. I got a few trees on oh. property that okay. actually are truffle trees. So one morning we woke up and uh, my neighbor brought over the Truffier, um, which is this great old French guy with a big green coat and a little dog, a little white dog, looked kind of like a Jack Russell. And we, he scooted and he was trained to go grab those truffles. He, he's got to sniff around the tree and he finds right. one and scratches at the dirt. The guy comes over and ties up the dog and then he scratches gently at the dirt with this kind of tool, this sort of toothpick looking tool. Like and a paleontologist he, digging yeah, up a dinosaur bone. And, he, <laughs> and he's smelling the earth, you know, he picks it up and he sniffs the earth a little bit and he offered, he goes, oh, here, smell this earth. I was like, yep, smells like dirt. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a nose for it. He slowly pulls out this, uh, these little nuggets out of the earth. And, um, and so that was really fun, really fun. And then, so uh-huh. we washed them off and my mom made, a truffle tagliatelle, oh, wow. which was, uh, I think, one of the best pasta dishes I've ever had. Everybody, everybody was literally licking their plate. <laughs> <laughs> that, you know, you know, 
yeah, yeah it's um I, I believe it man like one of the best meals i've ever had in my life was just in some hole in the wall random restaurant in in uh you know near uh notre dame in in paris I was I was asked, you know, I'm like, I have one day in Paris. What should I do? And I was asking friends. They're like, go to this little island. It's the it's like the oldest part of Paris. There's a little Ooh. island right next to Notre Dame. You just cross a walking bridge to it. There's like a row of like 13 restaurants. Walk mm. into any one of them. It'll be the best thing you've ever had. And, and mm. I did. And I'm like, nah, you know, they, the menu looks just fine. And, and it, mm. you know, the price is like it was like 20 euro or something for a five course meal. It's like super yeah you know cheap mm-hmm. like oh you know th- i'm sure that we didn't get one of the better ones but whatever and i'm like every course i'm like how do berries and cream just taste like oh, the wow. best thing that i've ever had how does this got it. soup is like the most you know has the most deep fresh flavors. there's none of the fucking additives and all that bullshit yeah it's like oh my food God, here. It's all incredible yeah you got it pal you nailed it yep so you know you know why i'm there that's yeah yeah, yeah that's i'm and sure that's live, a, a they a live big that draw. you know they choose to live that way you know, and that's an important thing. You, you taste a country's food, you can get a pretty good idea of who their character is and what they're, what's important to them, right? Right. Um, you know, you, ta- you taste our food and, and you get a pretty good idea of what our economy is like and what we value. <laughs> Doesn't it feel like, and I know, I know we're still not talking about the Stephen King shit yet, but, <laughs> but just because we're on this topic, doesn't it increasingly feel like and maybe maybe this has to do with the state of the world or the state of the country, or maybe it has to do with I'm just getting older and realizing it more. Mm. But it really feels like we've kind of been sold a bill of goods, like all My the friend. shit that we put up with, like on a day to day basis in like big ways, small ways, you know, everything from fucking healthcare to the cost of rent to um the way vacations are treated in this country, like all this right. shit, like, like, do you, is there anything that, to be done about this? Like, it feels like no one likes this shit and we should probably go about changing it. But the, the, the fundamentals of it seem so broken, like with the healthcare, like healthcare industry being like a perfect example of this. Like right. what, what the fuck do you even do? Like, are we just screwed? The, well, um, the tree of liberty must be watered from time to time with the blood of patriots. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I, yeah, I suppose no that's other, true. There's no other way around it. People with power will take more and more power and control until the people who are being taken from can't take it anymore and they've got nothing left to give. And believe me, we will put up with a lot more, unfortunately. Unfortunately. Yeah, and I think other, you're right. The other sad thing is everybody's sort of waking up, you know, and, and asking the same question, what the fuck can we do about it? Most of us just want to be left alone. As long as I got a roof over my head and enough food on the table, put up with an awful lot, you know? Um, but at some point, and I, and the other scary thing that I think about is that these, these people who are wrenching control away from the American people and doing it, and have been doing it on a consistent basis for the last 50 years, but now it's becoming blatantly obvious, which is why they want to control the censorship of the internet so badly, because Mm -hmm. it's the last place where you can actually share a modicum of truth with each other. They don't like that because of, of exactly what you just said. And everybody's having the same experience. I think the pandemic really pulled the veil uh, off. And, but my, my worry is that they'll 
prematurely sort of instigate some sort of civil unrest. You know, they'll call right. it they'll call it a civil war and then use that as an excuse to implement martial law. Mm. Sure. Um, you know, which sounds like a plot of a pretty good movie. <laughs> yeah. yeah it's de- definitely one with Gerard Butler in it somewhere. Yeah. And not that something movie. that, you know, not something that any of us is eager to live. The, but man, it's, it's coming. It's coming fellas. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't disagree with you. It like five, as recently as five or six years ago, if, if somebody told me that I would be like, ah, I don't know, you know, things are kind of shitty, but it doesn't seem like, like right. martial law really like, but I'm, 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 I've crossed over that line at this point. I'm like, yeah, that doesn't sound outside the realm of possibility. No, that sounds... and every other uh, reasonable thinking person uh, <laughs> in the country is thinking the exact same thing right now. And you're going to see that escalate in 24. I mean, oh yeah. Not, I wish I could vote for RFK jr. To tell you the truth. I mean, I really, really like the guy and, and, um, mm. But I don't feel like he's going to get the kind of support that um, that would be needed. But at least he's, you know, bucking against the system that we're and, and but like you said, like, you know, they'll, they'll shut him down. Like they shut Bernie Sanders down. They stole yeah. from Bernie Sanders and then they turned him into a puppet. He's mm-hmm. never been the same mm-hmm. since. So it would just to it, just an example to say how much power they they wield and how sort of futile it's, it sounds, but it has to be a revolution of the people. There's really no other way. I agree that it's going to be a grassroots thing. You know, I, 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 I voted for Bernie in, in the primary uh, against uh, Clinton, but I was also happy to vote for Hillary because it sucks that mm-hmm. that we have a two party system. But you know what? That that's what what our choice was at well, at, at that we point. We don't have like a two party system, though, Eric. We do not have a two party system. I, we have the illusion of a two party system. But I, I I hear what you're saying. Yeah, but I I think where it counts though, and this this is what I'm talking about, where the real power is is in you know, and I've I've had this argument with a lot of my little brother's friends in particular who are more on the libertarian spectrum. Right. Um, uh, but the, you know, I was arguing back in 2016, it's just like, you know, the president isn't King, but what I know Hillary Clinton won't do is appoint two or three Supreme court justices that are going to overturn say Roe versus Wade. Mm -hmm. And they're like, that'll never happen. And guess what, (laughs) what happened? So it's like, you know, you, you have to, I mean, listen, I, I understand that, that there's, that there is like uh, there are a certain class that that proceed you know that uh, uh, is higher than politics and that's like the yeah. you know the, the Koch brothers era you know the, the, the I don't want to call it the shadow you know government and all that because then you get in conspiracy stuff but you know you do have the, the rich people play it's by, a, it's an by old a, a very different 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 rule yeah. no, it's, but it's, it's like, an old guard that's permanently installed we can agree on that well and and the rich people care about like they don't care about politics they care about their wealth and their power that they, that they have with it. So I, I agree with you on, on that aspect. Um, but I also agree with you that it has to be kind of a ground up thing if you want to change it, you know, and that's what I was trying to argue with, uh, all my friends. Like I love Bernie. I, I tried to get him, you know, I, I put, gave him my vote in the, in that primary. I voted for, I think Elizabeth Warren in the, in the 20, yeah. 20 primary for that, that thing. But I was also happy to vote for Biden because I thought, you know, that my choices between Trump and and Biden or Trump and and Hillary like that that's an easy decision for me like whether you know <clears throat> I'd rather vote for incremental progress versus a giant step back is well, I guess what nice. I'm saying. So. The problem is there hasn't been any incremental progress 
anymore. <laughs> um, you know, uh-huh. it's, but the Romans call it bread and circus, right? Mm. Give them enough bread and enough entertainment, and you can do whatever the fuck you want. Right. And and that is still just as true today as it was then. And the the, the circus. <laughs> is uh very well orchestrated you know to distract people and the only way to really distract people is to get under their skin right rile right. them up to get some sort of issue that people everybody sort of connects with like race or sexuality right get in there and stir it up and get everybody like a swarm of bees around that tree meanwhile you go over and dro- rob all the honey from the other trees right. that's kind of a trump's uh, superpower is that People don't love him because he's Trump. They love him because he pisses off the liberals so much, right? And like, and and it just yeah. you get this I mean, the sports the sports mentality of like he I like that he's pissing off the liberals, so he's my guy. And then like he can do no wrong, no matter what comes out about him, no matter what he right, says, right. no matter what he did in office that didn't benefit anybody. It's like none of that right. matters because he's you know now you've you've uh, uh, you know politi- you you made it a, a sport thing and you're just sticking with your team. So. Uh, you know, I, I get it. Although I, I, I don't feel uh, smart enough to really, uh, like try to engage in a giant political conversation. I definitely have my well, thoughts, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm no political scholar. So, yeah. and that, uh, and, you know, that none of us, I mean, none of us, most of us, a lot of us think we are, and some of us <laughs> are, some of us sort of got it figured out. The hard part is sort of uh, separating the wheat from the chaff, you know? Right. The hard part is separating what you've been told to think and what's really going on. And that takes time. Most people don't have that kind of time. You know, they're they're busy, you know, and they're busy for a reason, <laughs> you know? Right. In the 60s, there was almost a revolution where the people almost overthrew the government. And how did that happen? Well, college kids had a lot of time on their hands hmm. and they were able and they're smart and they're eager and they're young and they've got the energy and the, and the attitude to change what, what they knew was incredible injustice. That was uh, only just, you know, the beginning really. Um, and they, and they, and they came real close, you know, the government was able to shut it down. They literally had to start shooting college kids on campus hmm. to do it. Yeah. But, Imagine the after game huddle going, how do we stop this? This is not good. Um, and, and the way they stop it is get those college kids in debt. Stop. Mm. College was basically free at the time, you know, and you, uh, anybody could work their way through college. Anybody could go to college and a lot, most kids did. And, and, but if you put them in debt, make them have to work two jobs and then keep them in debt. So even when they graduate from college, they're still going to owe 200 grand for the rest of their life. <laughs> yeah. And the interest is going to keep, only yeah. keep that money growing after yeah, they, yeah. they paid you it don't off have time. You don't have time to get together in the high school gymnasium and talk about how you're going to overthrow the government. That's all that's <laughs> out. You know? So that was pretty clever. <laughs> Interesting. Um, so before we jump into 1922, I, I don't have a good segue for any of this, by the way, which is why this is a, a hard turn back into Stephen King territory. But, uh, uh, I wanted to ask it, you know, for a while there, you were going to make from a Buick eight. Is that still something on the table? For, Unfortunately, for you? it's not. Oh um, no. Pandemic. Yeah. We had Jim Mickle and we had, one yeah, remember. and we were, uh, in fact, the week we were supposed to go out and pitch it is when the world shut down damn so we put that on hold uh 
and then when we started kind of creeping out of the pandemic, um, I got um, uh, Mark and Hawk, who did uh, who wrote Children of Men and Iron Man Three, and they also right. uh, create helped create the Expanse. Right. So I brought them on board, and we were working on it, and then we had the rug pulled out from under us um, because Stephen's agent had actually sort of without uh, sort of uh, bothering to tell us um, he'd uh, he'd um, informed us that our, um, our lease had lapsed. Oh, the option was over. Yeah. 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 Which was kind of an open, you know, it was just, because of the pandemic, you know, we, mm. uh, yeah, the, the, technically the option had lapsed a long time ago because nobody was doing anything. Right. Because the pandemic was shut right, down. Right. So it was sort of a matter of miscommunication. I think, um, I think, uh, James Wan's company has it now. And I, mm. and oh, we that's were hoping, interesting. Yeah. And we were hoping that they would turn in a different, you know, a, a draft that like nobody liked, but apparently they do like it. Oh, no. <laughs> um, because obviously we were first in line to get it back. Uh, so we'll see what happens. You know, we continue to, to follow it. You know, the, the, the road from script to screen can be long and circuitous. Yeah. So we'll see uh, what happens. But yeah, that was disappointing. Yeah, and I know that King is very strict about his option times now. Cause I think he had uh, early on in his career, he had optioned a couple of things that took either a shit ton of time or he, people sat on indefinitely like uh, Spielberg has the rights to the talisman and he bought the rights to make the talisman straight out, like in the er- yeah. mid eighties and yeah, still yeah. has never ma- been well, able to make it. Garibont's had the long walk for, forever and ever but i i don't think he's got that anymore that no yeah i read his his long walk uh mm-hmm. draft it was is awesome i mean yeah obviously you know it, it, it's a frank darabont thing of course allegedly awesome. francis lawrence is doing that for Lionsgate now well um that's good i would have loved to seen the darabont version and yeah, you know same. so it's no nobody's fault really it's just a matter of circumstance and time right. and assumptions that were made that um that you know sort of that we had a disconnect um, we were ho- hoping to rectify that, and who knows? Maybe we will in the future. We'll see what happens. Yeah, if, if yeah, if, I, I'm just saying that the possibility is there. Don't don't give up hope. If, you know, if they're as strict about their options with you uh, as they are with exactly. Juan and his company, uh, if That's they don't right. make it a priority or for whatever reason it takes a while, then then those options will likely uh, we'll stay on back probably. to King. Yeah. yeah, but I thought Mark and Hawk would do it awesome job with the yeah. USA. you know they've got the sensitivity and they've also got the genre um and they got the character chops which i think that that adaptation will need it, that's all that's what it's all about you know yeah. so when you were when you were working on it like did you have any struggles uh streamlining this thing down to like a two-hour movie Oh, no, no. It had to be a miniseries. I think that oh, really? you know, it had been through so many permutations, you know, um, uh, John Carpenter at one point, I, I can't remember, a, a slew of folks sort of toyed around and have toyed around with Buick 8 over the years. And nobody could really crack it. That's why it's never been done, because they were all trying to do the two hour format. And you mm-hmm. just can't do that 
with this book. It's too complex. There's too many twists and turns mm. that you really can't leave out. You know, uh, uh, to get the, the basic, the two hour version is sort of pointless, you know, uh, at the end yeah. of the day, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah. this, they got this car in a garage and it eats people. The end, you know, uh, would be pretty close to what you'd get. Um, so yeah, uh, the, the miniseries, the eight, eight hour version for me was the, uh, was the perfect way to tell that story. Interesting. That would be, it would be interesting to tackle that one as a miniseries because then what you could do is sort of mirror the, uh, the format of the book where it's like different people are narrating different chapters. Mm-hmm. You could theoretically have like different episodes from different characters perspectives and like their specific telling of that hours worth of events. That would be absolutely. Cool. Yeah. The, and which is essentially what the chapters are. They're sort of, you see the story from different characters, points of view, you know? So yeah. be, you could kind of Rashomon uh, the story. Totally. Of, a little bit. And I thought that, that was really exciting because you'd learn new things every time you sort of revisited this, this day or this series of events. Um, hmm. So that was really exciting the way that the, the, to weave those threads together in a really interesting way, play with time. Of course, you know, it takes place over a couple of decades. Um, yeah. There's a, there's a lot going on, you know, and I, I understand Plus all the creature shit is so cool in that. Yeah. And the, the alternate, dimension that the yeah art comes from and all that fun stuff it's 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 great yeah yeah the astronaut get made eventually front, yeah. i i have a i have a real soft spot for that book and um yeah. Yeah. it's it's kind of divisive amongst uh mm-hmm. king readers I've, mm-hmm. I've discovered yep uh or or hosts on this podcast <laughs> but um mm-hmm. but uh-huh. i the the creature feature aspect of it is like endlessly cool to me like yeah. that, that's why I want to see it brought to life. I, I saw it ultimately as a sort of a meditation on death, you know, sure. the, the, the car and what's on the other side of that car represents the other side of the veil. Right. Uh, and, and yeah, to, to keep and it and the way it affects different characters, vastly different. Everyone has a vastly different sort of reaction to um, the presence of <laughs> this sort of, you know, uh, this veil, this porthole into into another another world, um, which always felt like death to me. Hmm. Yeah, it makes yeah, sense. That's cool. Yeah, that's a cool angle. I'm a uh, you know, as Scott alluded to, it's not my favorite of the book. Matter of fact, it's one of the only. I think it's one of the only like serious like disagreements we have on anything King mm. Wampler and I like are, are fairly mirror images of each other on our opinions on, uh, on King stuff. Uh, we divert a little bit here or there, but like from a Buick, it's just one that bounces straight off me, but Wampler loves it. But at the same time, I was excited for an adaptation because I thought it would, there was a lot of cool ingredients there. I just didn't think that they gelled on the page the way, that uh, that worked for me and i thought that there was that meant that an adaptation of all the that stuff could take what i liked you know in there and made it you know make a little bit more sense which is why i was like i really Mm -hmm. like the idea of you know hiring writers that can focus on character and and really illuminate that so eric yeah i think what you're hitting on is what i hit on when i first read it which was that the, the, the book doesn't have an ending it doesn't it doesn't have a satisfying part of it yeah Yeah. It doesn't have a satisfying ending because it just sort of leaves you with this sort of hanging over the maw of mystery. Mm-hmm. You know? And and that was a big challenge for us as we were um, 
figuring out how to adapt this thing mm. sort of how do you wrap up the story in a satisfying way um and and, and you know do you tack on some ending that didn't make any sense you know hollywood lo- loves to do that they'll just rewrite the ending right. um, sometimes that works fantastically well like like the mist um but most of the time not um and we wanted to respect the you know what what King was just sort of trying to say, which is that there is no answer. You know? right. Everyone's trying to figure this out. What the hell is this car? Where does it come from? What does it do? What's coming out of it? What the fuck is going on? And that as a sort of a metaphor for life and death. And, and then, so you wanted to sort of end it with the mystery intact because it is, you know, it is an ongoing mystery that each one of us wrestles with. It's what we first talked about at the beginning of this podcast, you know, where, yeah. How does it feel to get old, you know? Yeah. Older. I don't think I'm old yet. But <laughs> we're getting there. Yeah, we're getting there. Don't don't, don't you worry. You know, uh, so leaving that mystery intact, uh, which is what I, you know, ultimately, yeah, I, I felt the ending was unsatisfying. Um, but, in you know, but then I'm like, yeah, but in a good way, you know, hmm. I get it. You know, okay. All right. Didn't wrap it up the way I wanted it to, but how could you? <laughs> right. That kind of thing. Yeah. No, I mean, I feel like if you have, if there's, if there's just something extra added with the character development, maybe where the characters get something out of it and you don't have to explain the mystery of the car, there just has to be a satisfying conclusion for the characters involved or something, some sort of end point or Each character end, gets thought, yeah. um, a, no. a gift coupon. Yes. A exactly. fine Christmas goose. 24 <laughs> hours in Willy Wonka's chocolate bag. <laughs> the unknowability of the thing is the whole point, yeah, right? right? As you've said. And so that's that's uh, one of the reasons people struggle so much with bringing Lovecraft to the mm, screen. Yeah. You know, because cosmic like horror. Cos- cosmic horror is is all about the unknowable and, and mm. the, mm. you know, the, just, well, mm. the unknowability of it. That's really it. And and that's what Buick Eight is like. Right, right. The there's no explaining part. it. There's no making sense of it. It just happened to these fucking people, and they're just kind of left to pick up the pieces. And no. that is not a very. It's not a cinematic ending, and right. I can see how that would be a tall order to sort of. Yeah, you, know. well, you get this kid, and and the way he grows, the way he he sort of experiences his father's you know last sort of time on Earth right. through all of his buddies, right? So each character is sort of telling this kid the story of what they knew and how his dad was connected to this crazy car, which they've kept secret and they can't tell anybody about except for this kid. So it that's the key to the story. It's this kid sort of coming of age or growing into or as at his adult sort of confrontation with death. Cause kids don't have to confront death. They th- like we were just saying, these TikTokers think they're going to live forever. And now they're just waking up to wait a second. Is this, tr- is this train going on without me, whether I'm on <laughs> right. uh, and that's what's happening to that kid. And so I, I do think that there's a satisfying way to uh, to make that happen, right. you know, through through him, you know, his his sort of uh, initial sort of uh, feelings about his dad, and and then um, through by the end of the story, he's the kid is he's um, what are they called? He's he's had his cherry popped, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, 
Well, we're very, you know, I'm bummed that you're, you're not going to get to take a crack at that. I was, I was very curious to see what you guys were going to do with it. And especially with Jim directing, I, I think that could have been really special. So we'll find something else. Yeah. 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 Um, But let's, let's talk about a a King movie that you did get to make, which is Mm. Zach Hildish's 1922. Mm -hmm. Um, We both revisited this for, um, uh, like a bonus episode of the show that we did recently. One of our guests requested to talk about it. Okay, cool. And um, so it's fresh on my mind. Like yeah. I remember this, uh, this came out, this premiered at fantastic fest the same year that Gerald's game did. And it was like two Netflix had two Stephen King movies. They brought them both to fantastic fest. It was, you know, a hell of a one, two punch with those, these two movies. Cause they're both, they're both fantastic, but I I had since revisited Gerald's game uh, more frequently than I had 1922. Yeah. And this was a, a an oversight on my part because rewatching it, uh, you know, a week or two ago, whenever it was that we did that. Um, mm-hmm. God damn, this is this is like a top tier King adaptation. It's it's low key. You know, it's not mm-hmm. like a big effects driven thing or, you know, it's not high concept. It's very meat and potatoes but god damn it's like the best version of that that type of thing uh so just as a starting point the movie fucking rules no thank you i you know i i think you're right i think it's a little bit slow you know or at least it has slow so if if you you need to be in the mood to engage and there are there are great movie i'm not slighting the movie because there are great movies that that have a slower pace to them and this is one of them Right. You don't pop on 1922 when you want to just have a fun night with, with the friends, right? right? This is this is like, I, I want to when watch When the something. boys come over with some beers, right. you're not throwing You gotta be in a mood. You gotta be in a mood, you know? <laughs> you watch The Mist then, right? If you're gonna watch the the Tom Jane, Stephen King specials, you throw on The Mist at that point, but, uh, and then watch their worlds collapse if they don't know what's coming at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but yeah, there's something really hypnotic about a movie that, that uh, can use a, a slower pace correctly and and i think 1922 has that is that is that something that like you felt on the page like how, how did you get into this thing was this something offered to you was it something you were championing like what like how how did all this begin and did well, you like, I, i'm you know? a, obviously a huge king fan and i've read a lot of his books and i have not read them all right. um and somehow full dark no stars was a book that had escaped me yeah um I maybe I might have read one story out of that collection, but 1922 wasn't one of them. Um, So that was something that uh, Zach Hilditch, who the writer and the director, reached out to me uh, and um, and sent me the script. And uh, of course, I read the script first just to to see if that was something that I'd be interested in. I thought it was really well done. So then I picked up the book right away. Quiet. I'm busy. <laughs> um, I picked up the book right away and um, fell in love with it. The tone of it is is yeah. There's a there's a one to one reflection of the script to the sort of tone and the pace of that um, short story or novel novelette, right? Which is really strong. I mean, if if anybody, I highly recommend anybody to read or even reread 1922. Um, in full dark, no stars. It's, it's, 
it's a wonderful character essay. And that's what's so great about King. That's what the great King movies understand and all the rest do not, is that they are all wonderful character excavations. You yeah. Know? I mean, that really is King's superpower. It's why we love him. And the fact that he combines that with genre is just a, a, a one-two punch, you know, um, and I think he's a literary uh, master. You know, I just—I don't think he's a beach novel guy at all. I think he's a literary master, and I think he'll be recognized as such. And you know, it provided that we have a civilization in a hundred years. <laughs> um, you know, he'll be recognized as such because right now it's—it's it's easy to sort of put him down and write him off in the in the, the hoi polloi and the literati and all that shit. But um, most of those people's work is going to fade into oblivion and King's is going to live for as long as uh, the English language does. So it's always a, you know, a, a real honor and a, and a, and a commitment, um, you know, a challenge that I take f wholeheartedly when, I, when it comes to adapting one of his pieces. I think all of them should be treated with the same reverence and respect um, uh, as that you would any other classic, you know, uh, some of them are lesser, you know, classics than others, but they've all got that spark. And, um, it was, it was, it was nice to see that this, the spark made it onto the, the screenplay, you know, and it gave me a character that, I, and as an actor, you just don't get time to do, or you don't get opportunities to play, you know, uh, characters. I don't. Um, and, um, so I relish that, you know, I mean, creating a character from the ground up and, and having so much rich material to work with. Hmm. Uh, so, um, it's one of those opportunities. I, I didn't waste it. Yeah, you certainly didn't. You make some, you make some big, uh, acting choices in this mm -hmm. movie, I would say. And yeah. they all work. I think. Like uh, on my first viewing and, and this most recent one, both times I was kind of struck by how you're playing uh, Wilfred, Wilf, this character. Um, and I'm I'm curious what informed this performance? Like, what are you where where are you pulling this character from? Uh, right? I have a theory. I, I think I think there is DNA from another very effective performance that might be in this character. Mm, interesting. But, uh, but, what is it? Uh, well, I don't want to tell you because then <laughs> like, I'm curious if he'll just say it first. Mm. <laughs> no, I won't. Okay. We'll, I we'll think oh, then I'll just tell you, I think there is a little bit of a little bit of what Joaquin Phoenix is doing in the master mm. in Wilfred. Oh. And it has to do with, your posture in the movie and how mm. Mm. and how like as as the moral rot of Wilfred sets in, it feel it it sometimes look like you're almost very subtly like mm -hmm. coiling in on yourself, like you're imploding visually. Right. Um, Good. Good. And and that's that's a, that's like a trick that I I remember seeing only one other time in that one other movie. And it was, mm. it was the master. And it's like mm. when he's, when his character in that, whatever his fucking name was, uh, yeah. Freddie, F 
Freddie Lowndes. I no, not Freddie Lowndes. It doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, that's from Manhunter. That was yeah, supposed yeah. to be uh, L. Ron Hubbard, right? That was yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's yeah. well. Philip Seymour Hoffman plays like the Hubbard stand. The Hubbard character. Yeah. yeah, but uh, but yeah. Uh, th- so that was my theory. I might I might be wrong, but I am curious, like how you went about crafting this character. Well, you're right with everything except for the drawing the inspiration from. Um, from uh, another another actor's character, I wouldn't do that. Well, I wouldn't say I wouldn't do that. You certainly borrow um, this and that, you know, from from other people, and, and we can't help doing that. And we even probably do it on a subconscious level. Right. I, of course, I, you know, if you look back into the, the movies of the '60s, like every other actor was trying to be Marlon Brando, <laughs> right? Um, and some of them to great effect. Most of them not. Um, you're right on the moral rot. You're right about the, and I'm glad you picked up on that. You know, the, the way I tried to physicalize yeah. uh, that, but, um, uh, I'll just tell you the, the easiest way to explain this is, um, the movie came out, my mother called me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, She's a huge king. She has actually read every king book. Uh-huh. She's a huge reader, and and the person that I credit to giving um, my my love of reading, which I then passed on to my daughter, um, and it's so happy to be able to pass that gift along. Because when when you do it, when a kid is young, it never leaves you. You always sure. that, that spark of imagination when you can create <clears throat> your own movie in your mind, you know and. The, and and really relish in a in a writer's sort of um, cadence and style and rhythm and tone and all that wonderful stuff affects you in ways that you could you never put into words, you know, and uh, and which is funny because they all come right from words. I've she goes, yeah, I saw in nineteen twenty two, my mom. I go, yeah, yeah, I, 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 I'm good. I know you would. She, she, always, she, anything King, she'll, she'll be the first one there to watch it. She goes, I know what you were doing. I go, uh huh. She goes, you gonna tell me that it's not true? I, I, I didn't say anything. She goes, yeah, that's funny because you know I didn't think you remembered him that well. I go, yeah, you know, I, I mean. <laughs> You know, I'd only seen him a few times when I was a kid, uh, and then once when 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 I was an adult. But he was already um, in the late stages of dementia. Um, but as a kid, you know, I would go down with my mother only a few occasions. We didn't go down there a lot. We went down on a very few times, but we did. We went down there, and as a kid, it left a big impression on me. We went down to Alabama, and uh, that's where my mom's mom and dad live. Mm-hmm. In a little farm in Alabama, and um, my my mother's father was named Ezra Shiver, and he was a World Navy uh, veteran, a World War II Navy vet, who had I didn't find this out till much later, actually um, at eighteen years old gone to France before World War II had broken out to fight with the French Resistance. Mm. Nice. He was uh, an incredible guy. He was an inventor. He invented, he, he would appropriate equipment from the naval base and bring it back to his little farm in Alabama and build shit in the shed, in the barn. 
and he would build these uh, international radios pick up things. He had a giant uh, satellite dish in the backyard. He had electric eye. This is back in the 40s. Electric eye sort of, uh, you know, uh, entrance, uh, you know, what are they called when you, you break the electric eye and, the, and you know that someone's on the property? I mean, oh, he, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, had secret um, closets. He had drawers full. I mean, he he was a genius. But he was also insane. So that was it. I mean, when I read 1922, I couldn't, I couldn't think of anybody else. That's so, interesting. So, so my, put- mother, my mother said, you did a really good job. <laughs> really, you put your grandfather brought, into that character. Yeah, you, you, put, you, brought, you brought chills. chills wow. You know, um, so that was a, one of the best compliments I've, I've gotten on a role. You know? It's amazing that you would be that well observed as a child to yeah. realize the performance, you know, decades later and to a degree kind of, that she would instantly recognize it. It's just kind of a feeling that you get from someone, you know, it's not, yeah. it's not so much observing their um, characteristics, but though that is what you're observing, but those characteristics give you or gave me a, a feeling you know, and as, as a kid, especially as you get, when you get older, when I got older, I lost that, you know, that ability kind of starts to fade because your, your analytical mind starts taking over, you know, uh, but you get impressions. That's why, you know, kids and animals, when they, they can, they get a sense of someone so fast and so true, so direct, unfiltered. And that's what, um, that's what I had as a child, you know, I, I could feel people really well. And that's probably the sort of the root of whatever talent I have. Hmm. Um, How would you describe the feeling that he gave you as a child? Um, yeah, beyond the initial sort of terror. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was terrified of my grandfather, too, but he didn't. He. he he was an alcoholic and there was a feeling in that guy that I think is kind of kind of along the lines of what you're doing with Wilford here, where the person feels like a coiled spring mm-hmm. that could become yeah. uncoiled at any second. That was sort of the impression I had of my grandfather as a child. Yeah. And he I mean, never blew up, but it was like right. that the tension was, was there. always there. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah, carrying that around, you know, and then yeah. carrying it around for so long that it actually becomes part of the body, which happens more in old age um, than it does. You know, you, you can sort of try to hide it behind posture and manners and all this stuff when you're sort of a younger man. But as you get older, it sort of takes over, you know, yeah. whatever that, that, well, you know, you said it best, moral rot mm. sort of starts to seep through the skin right? Uh, in, in many, in a variety of different, a kaleidoscope of different ways. But um, my grandfather was a world war two guy too. I'm wondering if maybe that's just mm. symptomatic of some of that through a thing like that. Some know? of it for sure. It's all you know? tangled up, you know? Yeah. Uh, my, my dad was a Vietnam vet. My mom was a Vietnam vet, but I know that, you know, that, that war affected that generation way more than most people let on or that they'll ever let on, mm-hmm. but it also affected their kids. Mm-hmm. You know, so 
it's funny how war has this ancillary effect right on on the population you know through generations yeah yeah now did did your you're pulling from observing your grandfather did that come through in the the voice that you choose uh, for for this character as well because it's it's a yeah. character that when Wampler and I were discussing him we were talking about how he's always seems to be speaking through gritted teeth yeah mm-hmm. yeah and right. and there's something very clenched about this character and and it it you there's a little bit of a curve and and again I really like the swing that you you take here as as an actor because I can see some people being afraid that the audience isn't going to stick with uh, a character that that has a different you know style of speaking the way the character does but you know and what can be off-putting it can and it will it can turn people off especially in a streaming scenario where it's easy to just say not for me and stop five minutes in versus i paid a ticket i went all the way to the movie theater i'm gonna (laughs) wait this out right um but uh but tom jane doesn't give a fuck about that come on now (laughs) But uh, but yeah no is is that where some of the 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 vocal the choices here came from as well? The only thing I had to change was the accent because uh, my grandfather has an Alabama accent, right? Very thick. Um, and Wilfred obviously is from a different part of the country, so I I had I worked with a um, great uh, vocal coach. Her name is Jessica Drake out here in actually right across the, the hill from me here in Silver Lake. Um, and she's fantastic. I've used her over the years for various things. Uh, so we worked, you know, hard on, on not, not losing what the character was because part of the accent is so much a part of someone's sort of way of being, you know, and it, it informs so much. And then there's sort of that Southern uh, lassitude that, that, yeah, that, that comes especially from the older generations you know they're they're southern with a capital s and uh so variations you know i had i had to move away from the alabama accent and the uh, some of the more hardcore um you know southern mannerisms that they that are sort of prevalent down in that part of the world um and sort of relocate certain you know mechanics really but the essence is is there Hmm. now you you uh you get to work and i think you work very well with molly parker here who plays uh wilf's wife uh arlette is she great she's she's a fucking powerhouse that actress yeah we we uh we had a blast with each other it's 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 rare and also super fun when you get you know to sort of box with somebody who's who's on on your level, or, right? You know, even even a, a little bit above your level, and and um, and uh, so that was it was a, a daily uh, delight to be able to work with her. Yeah, there's there's some moments there where she's giving you the, a stare where it's just like holy shit, like, uh, this woman could bend steel with her eyes. It's just like I wouldn't want to cross this person, which is perfect for the character who you know uh, the whole great. story's built around. Yeah. Will murdering his wife and talking his son into helping and you what gotta, you got to make her really hard to kill. <laughs> yeah, well, and dude, that scene is brutal. Like the, the, the way I, I can't imagine what it was like 
oh making it. Was it one of those things where it's like after each cut, everybody was like, ha ha, you know, we're laughing oh. it up because on at what you, what you captured is something that doesn't feel like movie bullshit. It feels yeah, that's like, what a, we're after. you know, almost like a snuff film, you know, to, to a certain degree, it's very uncomfortable to yeah, watch. That's, that's what we were after. I mean, I, I remember having conversations with the director and going, we've got to fit, we've got to, we can't do this in the way in the Hollywood, you know, the, the expected way that we have to, we have, this has to be messy and, and as real as we can make it. So when we were shooting it, no, there was no, no laughing and, and no mm-hmm. in between. In fact, it was dead silence in between mm-hmm. uh, takes. And we tried to keep it moving as quickly as possible. We tried to, you know, light it and then not fuck with the lights until we were done with it. Um, and um, I think we were pretty successful. And, um, you know, sort of maintaining that energy throughout the, the long afternoon of fucking murdering this woman, which was really exhausting, really exhausting. Uh, I don't know if it's in the I don't know if it's in the film because I can't remember. But after uh, one of the takes or probably near the end, I just remember sort of like collapsing onto the floor and just breathing. Mm-hmm. And, and and Zach just let the camera roll. So it's just like this silent aftermath of Wilf sitting on the floor, you know, breathing. And uh, I remember that being, um, apropos, it felt really good. It was the actor just being exhausted, but it was also Wilf just going, oh, my God. Well, the the murder in this movie is is so, I mean, it's graphic, you know, it's bloody. But it's, what, what I think really sells it is that clearly, like, Wilf and his kid don't know really what they're doing. You know, it's like, we're going to cut her throat and then you cover her face. And like, it's, it's like messy. It's sloppy. They don't, it's, uh, I can imagine why filming that would be like high intensity and, you know, (laughs) would fucking leave you sitting on the ground. Fucking awful. Isn't it? Jesus Christ. Yeah. It's rough. the The fact that this shit goes on in our planet is just never ceases to amaze me. Yeah. Uh, you know, guy, God, I know. <laughs> Do you think that you would be ever be capable of murder? I mean, only in self-defense, only in a, not, not in a cold blooded, like I'm going to walk over there and kill that person unless, you know, they murdered my daughter or something horrendous mm-hmm. like that. Sure. You, know, you see that happen every now and then, you know, yeah. or a woman or a man will just, you know, and they'll, they'll, they'll go do the time. You know, the judge yeah. is sometimes lenient on them and only gives them a, a few years, but they're like, I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know? Yeah. There's that famous thing that, where there's footage of the, the father of some, I think his, his son was sexually abused by somebody. And, and as he was walking into court, the guy who just walks up and shoots him in the head and mm-hmm. just like, yep. And then drops a gun. So that's all I, that there we go. Done. Uh-huh. You know, and it, it's hard. It's hard because a part of you goes, well, society can't just have people vigilante justicing mm-hmm. all the time, but also because they get it wrong just as often as they would get it right. Right. But, you know, is he wrong? You know, it's like, well, it was can can a jury look at, at his actions and go, go, well, you know, that that, that right. person wasn't justifiable in, in there and in, in what they were doing. So. 
It's a good intersection, you know. It's a good place to play in dramatically and thematically is is that that intersection between sort of like uh, moral uh, rectitude and uh, you know legal alleviation. You know, like yeah. that's an interesting sort of place to play in. Not a place anybody would want to to live in, though. Right? No, no, not definitely not. And to be clear, Wilf is very much in the wrong for the, for this character. Like this is a greedy move. This is uh, how how dare you try to undercut my manhood and also you know take what I view as mine and leave for the big city. And you're throwing away my yeah. way of life and throwing all this stuff and maybe taking and on top of that taking the kid with with you. You know, taking my son with you. It's like there's a Wilf is definitely not in the right. I mean, as I mean, the whole story is all about him being haunted by this choice and the, what his him recruiting his son to do it, how that destroys his son's life as well. You know, so many um, people have had that fantasy, you know, and that's what right. that's why King wrote it because everybody's, you know, feels that sort of in a relationship at some point where everything goes South and you feel like you're being toyed with and, and stripped of things that are valuable to you. And, mm, uh, you know, right. that, that mean, you know, the, the essence of your identity is being challenged and, you know, because that's why divorces get so bloody messy and right. so often. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the next logical step is, well, you know, I could just fucking slit her throat, but you know, that's the one that nine, 99.99 of us don't take. Right. <laughs> But so I think that's why it's kind of, at least it should be cathartic to watch, you know, it's part of what, um, it's part of what keeps us employed. <laughs> One thing that really struck both Vespi and I, and the, the guest that we, that we were talking to about this, uh, for that episode we did recently is how insanely easy it was to get away with murder during this time period. Yes. Like yeah. it feels like you could kind of get away with anything if you were just quick enough <laughs> like to absolutely. get to like get away from the scene. Yep. Um oh absolutely. They didn't have the methods, they didn't have the DNA analysis and the blood right. types and all and have any of that, you know. Tracking right. cell phones and finding locations. Well, my question is this. If you found yourself living in another time period like this, say the Old West or 1922 or what, everything before the advent of that sort of technology, do you think in general you would be more likely to do crimes? Because, and, and I'll tell you why I'm asking this. I would never, not with a gun to my head, would I go rob a bank in 2023, right? Right. But if it were <laughs> 1920 and there seemed to be a pretty good chance that I could get away with it, I right. might rob a bank. Like, right. why not? Right. Right. Um, funny thing about society, you know, before capitalism, before the Western world, when, when it was, if, when we just had Kings and Lords and, and, and even, and, and before that society didn't run on a win-win basis, you know? In other words, Mm. like I, your options for getting ahead in life, if you were an ambitious person, were extremely limited uh, all the way around. I mean, the the lords and the feudal people and the, the royals, they'd locked up that really well, you know? And it wasn't until the merchant class 
started arising and and the, they tried to put that down i mean they really tried to stop the merchant class from arising which eventually became the middle class in america which is what made america so great the fact it's the american dream but that didn't exist so the only way that you could get ahead was to lie cheat rob steal and kill that was it if you played by the rules, the rules were buttoned up in such a way that there was no way you could ever get ahead. You could break even, you know. You could right. sell your pigs for a little, <laughs> but but that was it. Um, so so those options were way more prevalent. It was way more likely that you were going to get murdered on the side of a road. Or the road gangs and the outlaws, you know, they were they were there for a reason. You know, they, they weren't necessarily just. A lot more psychopaths back then. Uh, they were ambitious people who wanted to get ahead and were sick of living with the boot on their neck, you know, which is mm -hmm. the way people lived, which is why we had the American Revolution, the French Revolution, etc. Um, so your options are different, you know, your options are different today. Uh, and, uh, and again, you know, that's sort of what we're fighting for is to sort of maintain those options because all civilizations fail all of them all the ones before us have failed yep. you know and ours is going to fail too and what we what we what we're witnessing is the steady accumulation of more and more wealth and power by the wealthy and powerful and that's just going that's not going to stop i mean the vacuum cleaner is turned on <laughs> And and we're all and we're all going to start feeling that way again with the boot under our neck, you know. And we, many of us, most of us, maybe still feel that way right now, you know. Sure. Boot's on the neck, the boot is on the neck, you know. And they let you squirt around just enough to to to, to let you breathe. Mm. So I don't know. What, maybe our options will be constrained um, in the future again, you know, which is why gun sales have gone through the roof mm -hmm. in the past couple of years. You know, people mm -hmm. aren't stupid. They, they see the writing on the wall. I don't know. I think if like, you're not wrong, but I, I disagree with the idea that people aren't stupid. <laughs> I, think, I think people are very stupid. And I think that if you go out and buy, you know, and I know people like this who, who own a lot of guns. Right. And their whole thing is like, well, well, here, let me, let me tell you a story. Like when <laughs> my, my ex-wife and I, when she and I first started dating and it, it was time for me to meet her parents, uh, I, I drove down to Houston with her to meet them. Uh, they lived in a, a the, the nicest area in Houston, huge house. You know, they had everything you could want. Yeah. Um, I wasn't there like 10 minutes. And uh, the her 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 dad kind of pulled me aside and was like, "Hey, you want to see something?" And I was like, "Sure," you know. And so he walks me back through the house into the front entryway, and he like reaches up over like the doorway, the front door, and there's just like a shotgun up there, and he shows it to me. Yeah, and I was like, "Right on." Like, I don't, like, what am I, what am I supposed to do yeah. with this information? <laughs> yeah. I've seen a gun before. Well, and, uh, he's like, so here's the thing. Uh, he's like, Obama is going to take all the guns and guess who's sitting on a lot of guns right now, you know, <laughs> and those are going to be worth a lot of money. 
Oh. And I was like, so your your plan is to become a black market arms dealer? Gun dealer. <laughs> and he you could tell by the look on his face that he hadn't thought about it from that angle. And <laughs> and when I said it, he realized how absurd it sounded, you know? And he was like, Well, no, not in t- entirely like he didn't he didn't have a he didn't have a good answer for for that question right. this man is like 80 you know he's not gonna be out here selling guns out of the back of a car right but i i think about that when i think about people who go arm themselves and then think that you know you're you're a middle manager of you're the day manager at a fucking chili's and right. you bought a couple of glocks and you think that that's going to mean anything in the face of the militarization of the police force. They have motherfucking tanks, man. Right. They have like firepower that will vaporize you before you can even get your safe safety off. So when I hear like people are buying up guns because they're not stupid, I feel like "Mm, I think they're kind of stupid because I think they're going to get fucking if, if this, the shit ever went down, and it was like the police versus the public. I think the police are going to fucking win that fight. Well, first of all, most of the cops are not going to fire on their own citizens. And you see that with the military, too. And this has hmm. been proven through history. You know, Fair when, enough. When Fair when enough. it comes down to it, the military is your, your neighbors and your brothers and your sisters. And they're not going to mobilize. Secondly. They would if they were getting shot at, though. All we've got is all we've got you know and and having a gun is gives yourself a sense of a sense of agency that's just maybe a, a fraction above having no agency at all you know and and people will and and the plethora of ways that things could go down mm-hmm. i mean we're not going to suddenly see the um you know the, the national guard marching through the streets on 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 monday morning you know, uh, no, what's going to happen in incremental bits and pieces. You sure. Know? And, that, and that's going to start with with looting and robbing. OK, so your first uh, responsibility is to protect yourself and your family. And 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 the First Amendment exists for a really good reason. And it's something that, unfortunately, we start to forget, you know, the First and the Second Amendment, both of them. Um, they, they, they're there and they're, they're called the first, you know, free speech and the right to own guns are, are there for, for a really good reason. They're first and second for a really, really good reason. And, mm-hmm. and the problem is though, that we sort of start to forget that, which is natural. I mean, life gets good, you know, I mean, what do they say? Bad, bad times create strong men who create good times who create weak men, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and, and that cycle goes on and, and that's. And that's absolutely true. But the American experiment is something that we're in the process in the middle of right now. And the argument is equally as important as, as whatever outcome that we ultimately choose. And hopefully, you know, the way, it, the way it's set up is that the people should be able to choose. Now, whether that happens or not mm-hmm. is, is a huge part of the argument. But the argument, you know, they like... The conversation that you and I are having right now sure. is the, the the American uh, way. You know, it, mm-hmm. it, it is an ongoing, evolving um, set of circumstances 
set of truths. The truths change. You know, what's true mm-hmm. last week is no longer true and what will be Absolutely. true next week. Yeah. So the argument has to stay. In other words, the doors have to stay open because you don't know what's coming down the pike, you know, and we can't predict. And we do. We're terrible predictors. You know, everybody has a prediction of how they think things are going to go down. And usually isn't nobody's right. You know, it goes down in a completely different way that nobody thought of. Um, So a little bit of agency, uh, it gives yourself a sense of responsibility that at least, you know, when they come breaking your door down, uh, and, and trying to, you know, steal your salt, um, <laughs> you'll, you'll, you'll have a, a, some means of being able to defend yourself. And, and what happens after that happens after that. But, but that's what's going to happen first. You know, mm-hmm. uh, in, in countries that have fallen into communism, um, and it's a fun thing to sort of review, uh, what happens is the monetary system goes to shit. Mm-hmm. So everyone starts bartering. And they barter with alcohol, cigarettes, and ammo, and coffee. So you get little bottles, and you start collecting them, and they're just like money, you know. Airplane bottles to pints, you know, uh, to jumbo size jugs, uh, and then coffee in all shapes and sizes, cigarettes, uh, and and then, and then ammo, and these become the currency of the underground, you know, mm-hmm. the black market. But there is no other market. You know, when, when country- uh, I think you're forgetting NFTs, sir. <laughs> <laughs> we got NFTs now. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely, a uh, it's a difficult, you know, complicated conversation. Um, uh, just in, you know, my anecdotal experience, those that are hoarding guns are, are not the brightest bulbs in the, in the bunch, not saying that oh, having, I mean, having, oh. having, having a gun to, for self, self-defense, you know, is, I don't think it's an outlandish position. And as like a left-leaning individual, that is not something uh, that uh, is a popular opinion, I guess, amongst, amongst progressives. I don't, I'm not super anti-gun, but you know, I am kind of in the group that thinks that the the whole AR-15 thing and like maybe militarized weapons shouldn't be very easy to get. And, you know, and and we're sort of, you shouldn't be able to show up in a gun market and walk away with yeah. a trunk full of guns, you know, we need, we need regulation. And, yeah. Absolutely. And I think that you can, you can lose your rights to drive a car. If you drive it recklessly, you can use your, lose your rights to vote. If you're, mm-hmm. you know, if you're uh, uh, convicted of a felony, right. It's like there, there are certain rights that, that, uh, that you have a responsibility to keep yourself eligible for. So I don't think that uh, don't maybe if you're beating, beating up your wife, uh, you should be able to Uh-oh. keep your guns, you know, that, that kind of thing. So just let me hang on to my comic books. Don't, don't yes, mess yes. my comics. Yeah. You, know? you can have your comics. They, they don't come from my physical media collection. So <laughs> when all these streamers keep kicking off uh, all these movies, I can still watch what I like. Yeah. Uh, oh, do you have a good DVD collection? Oh, oh my man. Like it's uh, I probably need a new house, like between uh, DVD, Blu-ray now, 4k. Uh, yeah. We're probably thousands, thousands of them. Yeah. yeah. I'm uh, I'm right behind you on that. I got a couple thousand, but um, I'm a huge Huge fan, huge collector. Uh, in fact, I just went through and created a whole cardboard box full of doubles that oh. I, I now need to go give away because oh, I, I forget that I bought something and I'm like, damn it, I got this already. <laughs> 
It's forgetting that you bought something, which I've done quite a bit. Uh, but then there's also that that whole juggle that you have to do when you're upgrading from like, mm-hmm. okay, I'm buying something on 4K that I only had on DVD. And then I go to yeah. pull the DVD off the shelf and I'm like, but this has like a right. commentary on it that yeah. didn't make it to the 4K. So do I, you know, it's like, what do I do? Do I keep it? I'm probably never going to watch it. But then there's right. the completionist yeah, in me it. going, but it, what if one day I want to listen to that commentary again and I can't. You got to keep it. Yeah, you got to keep it. So my and then dad. Some of these DVDs are worth a lot of money. I know. Like, yeah. Yeah, the well, out of print shit. Yeah, yeah for sure. I've got a, I got a movie that's out of print. It's called Thursday with uh, me and Mickey Rourke. Oh, oh no shit. And, and, uh, and apparently that DVD goes for a few hundred dollars. Mm. Um, I have a couple like that. Uh, they just printed a few of them. Yeah, Dogma like is, is like that where it, it like never made it it had like a really bare bones D- Blu-ray release like right. in the early days of Blu-ray, oh, but there was like a big collector's edition on DVD that like now sells for hundreds of dollars. Uh, Peter Jackson's brain dead, uh, dead alive. Oh. Like that's a great movie. Uh, uh, but yeah. I, I, I've been contemplating, should I sell it? Cause I have the Blu-ray, but, and, oh, no, no. Can't but, sell it. but between us, like, I know he's working on a 4k, you know, release. So I was like, you know, okay. eventually it's going to come out and big and be big. And then that Blu-ray is going to be worth, you know, $3. But, uh, no, I, I don't think so. I think those low print Blu-rays are always going to be worth money because I, there's I, I people like you and me that love them. That's true. Um, now 4k is that do you see any noticeable difference uh in and is the quality better or is it just sharper Mm. and you know is it because i've seen stuff that looks a little too sharp in a way like it not it's not um homogenous with its original material you know yeah that's all in the restoration it's not the 4k technology right. itself right. so sure. so that's the beauty of the 4k thing and also the danger like uh, the james cameron releases that are coming out now like uh, they're getting a lot of flack for for being the all the grain film grain being scrubbed and exactly. the uh, and the in the lighting they like changed the lighting like so like the deep blues yeah. from terminator 2 and aliens it's like yeah, no, now it's like- more gray and right. uh people are like what the hell it's like that was part of the identity of the thing that that's all in 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 the restoration process the 4k yeah. is great because because it essentially future proofs you for, for quite a bit because there's mm. only, I believe that 4k people who are much smarter at me at this than I am are like screaming at, at their, uh, at their, <laughs> their podcast uh, yep. of choice. However, they listen to that and their phones, whatnot right now. But there, I know that there's a line and 4k goes right up to the line on what is like possible. Uh, what we're like, what matches the the film stock or whatever. I think that film stock technically, if it was a higher format, like an I, if things that were shot in IMAX can go up mm. to like eight or 16 mm. K in mm. terms of, of fidelity and resolution. But, uh, um, but like for 98% of everything that was ever made, you know, at 4k, you're getting essentially one what's one. the equivalent of a f- fresh brand new, uh, perfect nice. film prints and you know oh, in your that's cool have, so have yeah you ever, have you ever side by side in a blu-ray and a 4k i've seen it done i've never personally done it uh uh but i have i mean there's a few like there's a halloween uh the carpenter halloween was released on 4k early on in the 4k revolution oh, mm. and i pl- put it on and i was like this is fucking terrible what is and they just like up res the, yeah, the blu-ray and i pulled out the blu-ray and watched it back to back like Right, you know, back to back, and the Blu-ray looked a thousand times better. So yeah, that, that's what I'm talking about. Uh, but I'd say mostly like the Shining, uh, the uh, thing 4K. looks incredible in 4K. 
Okay. The, yeah, they're saying like they the shining shot that fucker yesterday. Yeah. Wow. <clears throat> the previous cool. aliens they can go in and sort of clean up the print, and you know, they if they do yeah, it right, I, they're looking I at a real. It, yeah, it, it all comes down to exactly what they're doing to the original film stock or whatever they had to work with on its way to becoming a four day 4k disc yeah right. and some of the shit it just doesn't work like i remember early on when i started like picking up 4ks being really excited about snagging uh michael mann's collateral knowing hmm. full well that he shot that digital but i figured still you know it would there would there would be some sort of upgrade to it and it, it looked kind of like shit like right, right you know absolutely didn't work Right, yeah. I think right. So, how's the market for um, 4K? Are, are they are are this? Is it? Do you know anything about it? Is it like a it's, niche thing, or for yeah. only like nerds like us, or what? I think I think so. I th- well, I mean, I think that's all physical media now, though. Yeah, um, no shit. Uh, so, what I like about 4K being the default for that, though, is that, like I said, it future proofs proofs you. So, like my TV right now is barely like yes, I can watch 4Ks, but if I if I got a new TV they would look better than, than what I have right now. Right. right. Um, because they, they can process the 4k cleaner or some shit. I don't know. I'm not totally right. that savvy, but, um, uh, but yeah, all of it's turning into uh, niche things, but it's, it's, it's going the mm. way kind of uh, how vinyl is. Uh, but mm. I'm saying that now, as we're in the process of all these streamers, they're upping their prices, they're inserting uh, ads, they're uh, doing all this stuff to like essentially break people off of streaming. What a bunch uh, of and I've seen a huge turn now of people going, shit, maybe I should start, you know, I, I wish I hadn't thrown away my physical media collection. And people are going like, I, I think I'm going to start, I'm just going to cancel my subscriptions to a lot of this stuff and I'm just going to buy them physically. And I think that if that change happens, yeah. now is like the last possible moment for that to happen. Right. Uh, because if, if they waited another two or three years, just because I mean, even I think Disney was saying they were not going to be releasing their their newer movies on on physical release anymore. Oh, wow. And it's like so it's like, you know, we're, we're hitting that point where they might they're at the point now where they haven't done it yet, but they're they they can change their mind, you know, if the market comes back. Right. Um, I don't think that it's going to ever be what it was in the heyday of the DVD boom, no. yeah. but uh, I think that it could very well be a very lush yeah. um uh, it changed it changed the market too niche a, how you get a film finance i remember you used, yeah. to, used to be able to rely on these dvd sales these future territories and stuff and all that's gone so the, the way the deals are structured now is is um completely different you know i would say we uh speaking of the streaming we you know sag pretty much got boned with the strike that we did we, right we, all we wanted was some residuals from the streamers. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, didn't, didn't pan out that way, which is really frustrating. You know, these, these actors are just trying to make a living and, and most actors make their living off of, you know, their residuals right. from network and cable. Um, so the, the, the landscape is changing fast. Yeah, and now it's a struggle to to keep up with it. I mean, there's a reason why all the guilds, you know, were leaning on on streaming transparency when they were fighting, you know, whether they achieved what they wanted to, um, you know, or not. Like they they recognize it's important, and there's a reason why why uh, all the streamers are fighting tooth and nail, and we're willing to shut down the, you know, the uh, the whole business for for what six to eight months or whatever to fight for protecting that because they know the game is up once. Like, you know, once they start, uh, 
being uh, transparent with their numbers and, and paying their their uh, performers, yeah, paying the people. But you know, the, yeah. these streamers have made way more money than cable ever made, and way more money than yeah. network even made, and yet the networks and the cables are the ones that would pay the actors and the writers and the directors. Yeah. Um, and these guys, it's just that corporate seep, you know, what yeah. we were talking about earlier. It's just this corporate sort of like hose that you just can't quite figure out how to slow down. It always gets stronger, never gets weaker. Yeah. It yeah. seems to me that the, the devil's bargain here was that the streaming offered there was there was less creative oversight from streamers right you know there's movies that were getting made or 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 given a, a budget to get made that right. i don't think would have survived the studio notes process right and and so like that's a fucking you know if you're a creative you know that's the best thing you could hear like oh we don't have to fuck around with that anymore we don't have we don't when have that happened. They stole that from HBO. That's what. That's what. How HBO got to be HBO because right. they offered creators creative freedom, and they said, "We're not going to give you any notes, or our notes will be really minimal. Go, come here, please, do a show for us, and do whatever the hell you want." And that exploded. You know, that's why we had this golden age of cable. Right. Um, and so when the str the streamers imitated that when they came along, you know, and. Um, but I think to their detriment, because most of this stuff is awful. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, I have seen movies from filmmakers who I love, and I was excited to see that they were working with, I don't know, Netflix or Prime or whatever the fuck. And then I see the movie and I'm like, well, um, you know, maybe, maybe it did need like an adult in the room <laughs> offering a few notes. Like, maybe that wouldn't have hurt on this one. Did anybody see Rebel Moon yet? Oh, no. God, No. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm a member of the Academy, so I've got a, I've got a I'm in a slogging through 163 uh, submissions and mm. uh, Rebel Moon is one of them, but that, it just made me well, think that's a, that. that's a shoe in for best picture, by the way. So you should probably watch that. Yeah. The reaction has not been encouraging <laughs> on that one. Um, you know, wow. You know, this guy, he, Zack Snyder, he's so good. You know, he's, su he's got such a great eye and he's alive yeah. and his, his best work is so vibrant. And this just feels like it's just like made in mud. Like nobody mm. was paying attention. There's no character stuff. Yeah. It doesn't, it even, it even looks like somebody else directed it, you know? Mm. Yeah. My friend um, said it was very clear. You can see the volume that he's just shooting against screens and, you know, and that he just said it felt lazy. It felt uh, really lazy. Yeah. I, I watched a little bit of it and was, you know, disappointed and, and that but not only lazy, but imitatively lazy. Like they were using the same sound effects from star Wars right what you know, for yeah, real the way the guns sound and the way the guns load you know and that old stock you know that weird clicking thing that yeah uh, peter jackson did with the spiders and lord of the ring you know oh yeah like that it's they're still doing that crap you know so it's these same sound effects which in your mind automatically you're like reach this is a retread this is a mm. and it doesn't not doing it any favors but mm. uh you know talking about maybe it'd be nice if people were minding the store a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. indeed. Creative yeah. input. And Tom, I don't know if you remember, but there, after we first met on the mist, like we, we connected and, and yeah, I think we, you know, hit it off or whatnot. And we were, 
we would talk every once in a while. And I remember I was shopping. I was like at a, a Target or a Walmart or something. And I was shopping and my phone rings and it's you. And you called mm. me and you were just like, hey, I have a question, something to run by you. Like I've been offered a, a part in Watchmen. Uh, and it's like, like, what would you do? And I think I advise you to take it mm. at the time because I'm like, you know, at the time, this is Zack Snyder coming off of. 300 uh dawn of the dead dawn of the dead and i'm just like this guy like like you said he shoot he's got a great visual eye um yeah, and and uh, and i was really excited to see you know somebody with coming up with that level of power you know mm-hmm. i remember asking you like is you know as a fan of the graphic novel or like like does it does it you know have you read it and all that and you said that you, you were getting all the right vibes off of it i think they wanted you for the comedian right Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh and so i was just like man i'd take it and uh thank you thankfully you didn't listen to me on that on that one <laughs> uh, but i mean i ended up liking the movie i'll, I'll say that uh, you know up front i liked i like that but it's it's weird how this kind of uh the cult around Zack snyder has taken a filmmaker i was even when he swung and he missed i was always looking forward absolutely to seeing him do it and it's right. a, a combination of him like kind of embracing the most toxic of of fandom and wow. and them acting as his army right. uh, has just really kind of soured me on him. And, you know, and it's made it so like, yeah. it, I feel like I'm uh, like, having an obligation or a chore, you know, if I'm going to watch his next thing. Yeah. Interesting. You know, because yeah, I mean, I was the same way. I'd be the first one to line up for, for anything that, that he did, whether it was good or bad. And um, mm-hmm. interesting career turns that people take. I know, remember De Palma, he had a, mm he sort of took a turn where suddenly everything he did just didn't have, didn't feel like a De Palma film anymore or, mm. or it would, but only for brief moments. And, uh, yeah. and that happens, that happens uh, quite often with, right. with people have a sort of a creative peak. And then, and I'm not, I'm sure there's a number of different reasons, but I'm not quite sure, you know, yeah, what, what is I mean, I understand with Hitchcock, he just got old and sort of right. just slowly started sort of losing his touch, you know? Yeah. Kind of like Charles Bukowski, if anybody reads Bukowski, like his most mm-hmm. of his books are just slam dunks, you know, and whether you liked them or not, they were brilliant. You had to read them. And then his last one, oh, it was sad because you could just, the, the voice was gone. It, their words mm. were there on the page, but, you, and you just felt sad because you know, he, he loved to write and he had to write, but something, was, and then of course, a couple years later, he was dead. But so it's not that because mm. most of these guys are, you know, young enough. That, yeah. Scorsese uh, still making movies that are very through and through Scorsese. And, and, and yeah, you don't and have to lose it. And, you know, some people yeah. you don't have, you don't have, I just curious as to sort of what that might and King be. for that matter. Thank God for our show. <laughs> the, the King is, you know, it's he's pumping sad. out stuff that's still, still fucking great. And so amazing. Yeah. Tom, have you kept up with any of King's recent writing? Let's see. Um, Holly or oh, no? I just saw Holly, and I was wondering if it was any good. Oh, it's it's, fucking it's really great. Good. Is it Billy yeah. Summers? If you haven't read Billy Summers, is oh, so right. up your alley. Yeah, Summers you would love great. Billy Summers. In fact, you could you could play Billy Summers. Yeah, is that is that set up? Uh, <laughs> I don't know, but kind of. Yeah, the, uh, Paul Greengrass was attached for a minute, right? right. No, no, he was. Oh, like, no, no, no. Paul Greengrass was on Fairy Tale, and yeah, then, who, but who I was think it? I think uh, Bad Robot has Billy Summers. Mm. Yeah, okay. they, they had some some director on it, I think. But uh, but it, this is a uh, King's take on an assassin doing his, you know, his last job kind of tale. Oh, I've, re- I've read Billy Summers. It's great. Oh, OK. Yeah. Good. Real yeah. pulpy. Yeah, I love the pulpy stuff. I love I like his hard case, the stuff he wrote for. Hard oh, case. yeah. Then you'll oh, yeah. then you'll like Holly. Like I hadn't read. Uh, I, I've 
kind of set aside the Mr. Mercedes trilogy for like a rainy day. I had right. read The Outsider and I read If It Bleeds, right. like yeah. the, the other novella that has Holly Gibney as the main character. I've, I've read both of those. Uh, I love The Outsider. I wasn't crazy about the adaptation, but boy, I, mm. I like that book. Yeah. Yeah. The fucking the, the problem with that series, it was about three episodes too long. Yeah. You right, know, right. they needed to tighten it up. But um, what the fuck were we talking about? Oh, uh, Holly. Holly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah Holly's yeah. just like it's it's great. It's, it's r- real macabre. It's got it's not the kind of thing where like there's a like, you know, who's doing it, you know, like who the criminal in the scenario is. And so it's a matter of like watching this detective sort of figure it out in real time while you're also flashing back to the, the shit that, uh, you know, the bad guy or bad guys have been up to. And it is just like, you won't be able to put it down real good. I'm gonna order it. When we get off of here, I'm going to order it and grab it. I'm also going to make sure my mom knows about it too. Oh yeah, for sure. Nice. Yeah. Let us know what your mom thinks. And then hey, you too, if, you, if you're fine, if I can guide it back to 1922 for a second. Oh, sure. Um, Neil McDonough, uh, mm. Place oh, Harlan yeah. in this kind of a, a hard ass Great who's time. giving you a hard time. Um, I'm, I'm just curious what that guy's like. I'm very yeah. curious about him. Yeah, right. Because he turns up in some really interesting roles. I really liked him in Minority Report. He, yes. oh, he's fucking great in Minority Report, and he's got like such a he's got a unique face. Like mm-hmm. he looks mm-hmm. like he yeah. was made in a lab, right? Or With something. those blue eyes and that yeah. Hair. yeah, yeah. True. Uh, um, but what, what I, I have no read on what that guy is like as, as a person. So I'm just curious, right. like what that dude is like. Yeah. There's an interesting kind of quality that he has. That's almost mask. Like you can't quite uh-huh. figure out who's, who's under there, but, but he, but it's a good mask, you know, he's, he's engaging and uh, he's with it, you know, and, and he has fun when we're, we're working together. I got to tell you, he's just a really bright simple, nice, uh, guy, you know, um, no, no complications. You know, you don't, you don't feel like there's anything boiling on under there. He's no, no secrets, you know, he just kind (laughs) of is who he is and and he's, um, and and what you see is what you get and and what you get is a very pleasant, um, you know, talented man. How often do you find yourself on a production dealing with unpleasant people, fellow cast members? You don't have to Not name often. names, but like it's happened. It's happened. It yeah. happens. It happens. How you do know? you uh, how do you deal with it when it happens? Well, I try to have the meta attitude that acting is really, really hard. It takes a really odd person to be able to pull it off and do it well. You know, you, you just you can't quite be a normal human being to do this job and thank God this job exists because most of us would be, you know, homeless outcasts or criminals <laughs> if we, um, cause we, we wouldn't really have a place in society, you know, right. definitely artists, but, um, something more, we're performance artists, which means we expose ourselves in front of, you know, human beings and, uh, you know, in all ways, you know, uh, in, in every way you can think legal of. ways. <laughs> most of the time <laughs> so i just you know I, and, and sometimes 
it seems like it would be pretty easy for that to breed different sort of pathologies that uh, or psychopathologies sure. that that and you and most of the time those are benign and that you know and yeah, yeah, most actors are you know they they go along to get along and um, but sometimes you know it kind of gets reversed and then this person just becomes a real pain in the ass and that might come out of insecurity or it might come out of an inflated sense of themselves you know which probably comes out of insecurity <laughs> um and uh, so i just try to make the best of it you know I, I try not to take any 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 flack sure but, um, but i do we just try to sort of you know <clears throat> this business is fairly unforgiving you know if you got a really I remember Dustin Hoffman had a bad reputation for just being a difficult prick, you know? uh -huh. but he was Dustin Hoffman. Right. 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 Uh, so people put up with it. <laughs> like Richard Dreyfus. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like Dreyfus. But he, but he's, I, I actually worked with him uh, a couple of years ago and he was fantastic. Oh, really? Was, oh, nice. Yeah, he really was. He, he's an older guy now and he was full of stories and open and, you know, he was Richard Dreyfus, which is funny because that's probably who he's always been. Mm, right. But whatever different sort of life things and circumstances, uh, you know, made that, made that harder to access for him. Most of these people want to be nice. Sometimes they just can't. Right. <laughs> so I, I try to be forgiving. Mm, right. Honestly. Have you? I I recently I went to New York to see uh, a play called The Shark Is Broken. Have you heard of this? No, I haven't. No. So Ian Shaw, who's Robert Shaw's son, wrote a play that was essentially it was derived from a lot of his his father's diary entries from the oh, making of Jaws. I love that. And so it's essentially three. It's a three guy play, and they're just sitting there on the set of, of Jaws on the Orca on the ship. Right. right. Uh, as they are waiting between scenes as the shark's not working. Right. I love that. Um, and Ian Shaw is an actor as well as a writer, just like his father. And he plays his father and he looks just like Robert Shaw. Wow. Um, and then they have uh, a guy playing Brody uh, slash uh, Roy Scheider and a guy playing Dreyfus. Right. Um, wow. And, they, I went out to see it because I have to. Jaws is my all-time favorite movie, and so I. It's in New York. Where is this? It was. It was in New York when I saw it, but before then, it, it originated in in England, and then it went to Canada for a bit, and it's been like four or five years on the road where it finally landed on Broadway. Um, Good for them. That is uh, so cool. Yeah, it's it's great. But I right before I I Dreyfus isn't portrayed particularly kindly he's really kindly. fun the, the character is very funny but he's very neurotic he's very self-centered yeah, um sure. he's very he he's very thirsty uh right, portrayed right. as a very thirsty actor he's trying to get yeah. you know connections he wants to be taken more seriously so he wants to get robert right. shaw's connections to the more like english theater you know people that kind of thing right. uh, throughout the whole thing and dreyfus right. actually went about two or three weeks i think before I, I i ended up out there he went and he like there's pictures of him with the cast and everything yeah. and then he somebody interviewed him about it and he was like it really hurt my fucking feelings if i'm gonna be honest uh -huh. watching how you know because like this isn't how our wow. relationship was this isn't how i remember it being anyway it's like this isn't is now hit and he was just like he wasn't like pissed he was just like yeah. it really hurt me to sit there and watch yeah. this and have people laugh and think that that's who i am and yeah. uh must have been uh you know 
obviously if we the character that they created is much more interesting to watch than who Dreyfus probably right. really but was. But it's also, it, it's not, the thing is, is that that character, what the things that he was objecting against have been documented going back to right. like the Carl Gottlieb Jaws log, which he wrote on location. You know, it's like, he, it goes back to uh, the very specific things he was arguing against were things that his, that Robert Shaw was writing down about him. The blind you spot. Know. The blind so, spot. So part of it, yeah, it is, it's like, it, you're right. It's probably theatric, you know, theatrically exaggerated, but it's also the fact that uh, that's how he didn't see himself that way. Right. And, but that's how right. maybe uh, Robert Shaw saw him and how, you know, yeah. it might not be the full truth, but it's his perspective of, of what, uh, what it is just as Dreyfus, nobody has their full truth about how everybody perceives us too. Yeah, it's, it's really, really interesting as somebody who's a huge jaws nerd and a huge, uh, like no all, warts and all like you if, if Dreyfus was ever if I ever met him and he was a dickhead to me right. I, I would wear it as a badge of honor right uh-huh. you know so like I'm a huge fan of all of all that stuff uh, but it is really fascinating when you kind of boil it down I know we're we're so so wildly off topic here and we are pushing yeah, two we hours to, so we should we probably need to bring this bad boy in for a landing probably it's hard, so hard to see yourself you know and then uh, other people they all have their own ideas based on you know who they you know were you know who their mom and dad was it's it's just this prism of mirrors looking at mirrors looking at mirrors that that we're all sort of caught in you know it's like indra's web we're (laughs) all we're all part of it trying to trying to you know reach out it's hard to it's hard to know how how do we know anything you know and what what we really agree on these are just um you know a, pl- a place in time and, and space we're just sort of trying to maneuver maneuver our way through it right I, I i got one more question for you and then and then we can wrap this up i think but i'm curious you're an actor who i feel like becomes their characters on screen right in a way that i don't necessarily feel about a lot of other actors I feel like you're really luxuriating in whatever character you happen to be playing at that particular time. True. And okay. So if that's true, then I'm curious what it's like to live in the headspace of someone like Wilfred for weeks at a time while you're filming this movie and how easy or difficult that might be to shake it off at the end. There's a couple of, you know, I I have a different working style uh i use different tools for different characters uh-huh. and the wilford character and i've done this before but this was a character that i knew that you couldn't take a break from mm. um you had you had I, I had to wake up in the morning as wilfred work all day eat lunch as wilfred <laughs> you know, and 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 interact with uh, crew members, including my makeup team. Who, who, you know, and Wilfred's not the most pleasant dude to be around. No. Um, so you're doing the voice and everything. Yeah, yeah, and the and the the the, the character. You know, I mean, yeah. I, when you when you sort of put all the pieces together, you're not doing any one thing. It's all sort of working at once. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I can't, I can't, I can't like stay in 
stay the, the way Wilford walks, but not the way he talks. No, it, it's all one piece and it all has to be working together and the motor has to be running at all times, you know, and uh, only when I would get home at night and then sit on the balcony and light a cigar and then work on the scenes that we're going to shoot the next day. Right. That little window, I would drop the character and just read the script and try to understand the scene that we were going to shoot the next day mm-hmm. and, and get a grip on, on how that felt and what that meant and the work that I had done before and reconnect with sort of those scenes that we were going to shoot the next day. And that brief little window, I would be uh, Tom Jane smoking a cigar on the balcony with his shoes off. Uh-huh. It, and, oh. <laughs> um, but, yeah. But other than that, I'd be in Wilford. It was Wilford day in and day out. I, I could see that it took a toll on the people around me. Like Ben Richardson was a wonderful cinematographer. Yeah. He's done some great work, hard working, dedicated, you know, guy. I didn't have very much interaction with any, with him or anybody, but I could tell, you know, like when I would at the end of the show, <laughs> when I would drop the character and we wrapped, you know, and I was saying goodbye to everybody. You know, the Ben barely looked me in the eye when I shook his hand to say what great job he did. You know, because he was still responding to the Mm. Wilfred that I had, you know, imposed on everybody for the last six weeks. So uh, it it takes a toll. You have to be willing to for people to have a different opinion of you, you know, and we're very, you know, I like I like people to like me uh, like most people i want people to have an impression of me and then be liked and get that reflected back at me so like oh i see you and i like you you know and let's have a conversation but i didn't have that i had wilfred you know and nobody really much liked talking to wilfred <laughs> <laughs> so you made yourself unpopular for your art on that set is what you're saying and it's just something that I didn't really, you, you can't think about, you can't go, oh man, you know, you, you can, you can think about it after, but, and I wasn't a dick, you know, I might've been a dick a couple of times, you know, to like the, I remember the makeup for, for the teeth. I wanted the stain on my teeth and it kept coming off. Yeah. Um, so I would react, behave like Wilfred would to her and, and I apologized to her when we were done, but, um, you know, I don't like being a jerk and I wasn't, I was just, you know vaguely unpleasant to be around (laughs) (laughs) but that changes from character to character some some characters i can't really get a grip on and therefore i always try i never try to phone it in you know i was in france and driving around in the rain and i was going to the bank i wanted to deposit some american money that i brought and put it in the french bank account and they of course they they wouldn't let me you know Everybody's getting this thing with cash these days where you can't, they don't like cash. So yeah, yeah. They wouldn't take my American dollars. And, but I was driving around listening to a podcast, Quentin Tarantino and Roger Avery. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Video archives. Yeah. Driving around, listening to these guys jaw about movies in the rain in France. And they start talking about um, Bruce Willis. Yeah. And, you know, of course, everything's the genre side. And they were talking about those little movies that uh, Bruce started cranking out, you know, at the sort of end of his career. Right. Um, that was sometimes they'd shoot him in two weeks and they were talking about those, those movies. And I'm like, Oh yeah, yeah I did one of those with, uh, with Bruce. 
and then uh, Tarantino goes like Vice, you know that movie. He goes, I, I liked it. I actually, and I was like, wait, that's that's the movie I did. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, I thought it was, you know, for what it was, you know, and I, I, I thought it was cool and it had, uh, and Bruce was cool and good, good. I'm like, oh, that's neat, you know. He saw that movie that I was in, and then he goes, uh, Tarantino goes, yeah, but that, Tom Jane, I didn't like him in that. Oh, oh Jesus! <laughs> You're like, no. I'm driving around in the rain in France. I'm like, did he just say, fuck? <laughs> I was like, oh, man. And, and then I thought, hey, Tarantino saw one of my movies. Wow. <laughs> but at least he name. saw it. He yes. just said my name on the, on the podcast. <laughs> um, but, it, but it did. And he was right. You know, I, I, didn't, I didn't do that good with that part. Um, and so some, some parts you just don't couldn't wrap my head around or come up with a, something that would be fun to, uh, to play with. You know? mm, so we give sure. it a shot, give it a shot with everything. And, and it was certainly wasn't one of those characters that I would have stayed in character all day for. Right. Um, just because I didn't, wouldn't know what, what to dance with, you know, right, right. who the dance partner was in that. But um yeah, that just happened a couple of weeks ago. Did you did you uh, speak much with Bruce? Did, uh, did you work with him? I haven't seen the movie. I didn't know. If, don't know if you shared many scenes or anything. But uh, oh yeah, we got along great. Because I've heard um, that that Bruce. I mean, I, I've heard that Bruce is a huge Stephen King nerd. Right. He played Paul Sheldon on on stage with Laurie Metcalf for Misery. Hmm. Like mm-hmm. and he also has a reputation uh, for cast helping cast Michael Clark Duncan in the Green Mile because mm-hmm. Darabont said that he got a call from mm-hmm. Bruce Willis like the second he got the rights, and mm-hmm. Bruce Willis said, "Hey, I've, I've read these I've read these books too. There's only one person that can play John Coffey, and I just worked with him on Armageddon. His name's uh, um, you know Michael mm-hmm. Clark Duncan. You need That's to have him cool. in the role." And yeah. so I've always been fascinated. I've met him a couple of times throughout my my uh, movie blogging the ain't it cool days um uh during that that era and like we we got along uh, in in that period but i never would have thought before doing this podcast like kind of put the pieces together about how like hardcore of a stephen king fan he must have been uh i don't know all that stuff. I, I do know that he was having trouble memorizing his lines i guess right. everybody knows that now yeah, yeah yeah um and he had an earpiece and uh and so what you would get out of him was in short little bursts you know yeah um and and then and you'd have to cut around him quite quite a bit right um so we had this scene and it was like a couple pages maybe two and a half pages maybe three for for a movie that's pretty fairly long scene i was like there's no fucking way uh-huh. that we're just gonna basically we would stand there and you know somebody would feed bruce a line and he'd sort of say it you know and and you weren't even acting with him so we were waiting around to start this scene like they called us to set and they were finished the, the lighting and uh, i said to bruce you know i talked to him a little bit and i said hey you know, this scene, it's kind of like about this, you know, like this guy and he wants this, right? And you're the guy who, who wants that. And I go, well, wh- why don't we just uh, throw the fucking lines away and see what happens? And it, and his eyes lit up and he's like, Fuck, yeah, all right, let's do that. Mm-hmm. And that's what we ended up doing for those scenes. And he had a blast and I had a blast because we didn't know what the hell was coming out of our mouths and it didn't matter. But we were improving the scene instead of doing that 
that horrible uh, earpiece thing. Right. And and I I remember that because we both got a real big kick out of it, you know. Mm. In the, even in these little movies where they don't really give a shit about the acting, you can still have some fun. Right. Um, and I know that that uh, that he had fun doing that, you know. Oh. Well, uh, yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad. Uh, uh, but, you know, speaking of having fun, we've had almost two hours of fun chatting yes. your ear off. We, this conversation's gone in all sorts of wild, deadly serious and not deadly serious uh, discussions, which is exactly the way, the tone we want to set going forth uh, in this year, this new year of the show. So thank yes. you so much for, for coming on uh, and, and chatting with, with us again. My pleasure, fellas. What do you uh, what do you got coming up? What's on uh, what's on the immediate horizon? Also, are you still yeah. not wearing shoes? Well, no, I started wearing shoes. Um, <laughs> you know, not not for me. You know, but well, when no, I, I have to go out and like meet somebody, I'll I'll put shoes on now. You know, it's a new decade. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm not, not going to impose my my feet rules on anybody else. <laughs> Foot prisons, know. I believe you called shoes yeah, the last um, time you were so, on the show. So, so at home, you know, or when I go out to the, to the market or, you know, pretty much. But if I got to go meet somebody for lunch or, you know, go to a thing, I, I put the shoes on these days, you know. Well, it feels end, good. end of an era, perhaps. But yeah. <laughs> but I, I I respect your commitment to not wanting to wear shoes. It's it's one of my, my favorite things about you. And, and thank yeah. you so much for, for coming back on here to you know, shoot the shit with us again, man. This is great. We'll do it again sometime, fellas. I had a blast. Well, I mean, we've talked about The Mist, 1922. That's only Leaves Dreamcatcher, man. So, so. Oh, shit. So I'm just saying, we got to finish the Holy Trinity. So Yes. Another story for another day. (laughs) (laughs) Many thanks to Thomas Jane for coming back to the show. Uh, I may not agree with that man politically, but but boy, is it always fun to to have him on. And, uh, you know, I don't know. It's kind of a nice change of pace to, you know, to have these freewheeling conversations. I know that uh, 1922 was, was the topic here, but like with anything with Tom Jane, you... You start off with a topic and then you end up talking about 18 other different things. So Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, uh part of the magic of Tom Jane. I'm 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 surprised he came back after the first one. <laughs> I'm legitimately surprised. Um that was such a wild ride his first his first time out and I yeah. figured well, maybe he'll, he'll he'll listen back to that and be like, "Oh, I'm not doing that again." But uh <laughs> nope. Nope, he he did do that again. And again, I, I, we had a uh a blast talking to him. Yeah. Weird, weird guy, but I like him. Yeah, no, very, very much. And uh, I don't think it's an empty promise when uh, that he said he wants to come back. It's He's a weird guy in that respect, too. It's like if he just likes you, like even, again, like I said, we don't agree politically and we were pushing back a little bit on some of his more libertarian viewpoints. Uh, I might have, you might have audibly picked up my... Well, whenever he was talking about wanting to vote for RFK <laughs> yeah. Jr. Um, yeah. But uh, uh, I was like, yeah. well, I'm not going to. I'm just going to let that one slide. I, we don't we don't have 45 more minutes. <laughs> right. Uh, but, you know, he, he's also somebody that actually wants to engage in conversation. So it's uh, mm-hmm. there are, a lot of folks are, are pretty stubborn. I've noticed with Tom, like if you push back on something and you have a good reason to push back on it, he'll listen to it, whether or not he yes, that's incorporates true. it. I don't know, but, uh, but he'll <laughs> listen to it. So, uh, 
Um, but yeah, I, I don't. I take him at face value when he says that that he likes us and wants to come back. And if so, then like I told him at the end of the episode, that leaves Dreamcatcher. So yeah, uh, can you imagine getting Tom Jane back for, for another another time in the saddle where Dreamcatcher's the the conversation? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think we need to we need to make it happen before we bring the show in for a landing. Yeah, yeah, we'll, for sure. Uh, yeah, we'll we'll try to make it happen. We'll do do our best. So unless he listens back to this one and goes, "Oh God, what did I do?" Then, uh, uh, you know, then we'll we'll do our damnedest to get in, get mm-hmm. back on uh, to talk Dreamcatcher. Hey, for uh, anyone that didn't feel like they got enough 1922 talk out of that yeah. episode, be aware that this Friday on the uh, on the Kingcast Patreon, that's patreon.com backslash the Kingcast. Uh, we have our friend Charles Bromesco, uh, a, a film critic of some renown, uh, returning to talk about 1922. Uh, Charles has an extensive background in documenting Netflix original programming. For many years, he maintained a list, a running list of a ranking of every single Netflix original movie. And 1922 is uh, one of the good ones. And uh, he wanted to come on and talk about it. Always happy to talk to that dude. And uh, so you're going to get even more 1922 talk over on the Patreon uh, this Friday. And it will be uh, a bit more focused. Yes. Yeah. So we, we get a little bit more into the weeds on the the story, the plot, the characters and whatnot than we did with Tom Jane. But uh, uh, we f- figure it makes a good companion piece. And also of note, we recorded this 1922 bonus episode before we recorded our chat with Tom Jane. So there's a few... There's a few moments in there, if I remember correctly, where we're just like, I wonder what he was thinking about this. And I wonder what what choice this was for. And then uh, it's like, oh, well, you know, we're about to talk to him. Well, we'll see. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's it's a it's a good one. Uh, definitely head over to uh, Patreon and check it out. Um, and next week on the show, we're I don't know if you've noticed, but we're kind of hitting the ground running this year uh, on uh, KingCast uh, guest list. Um, I think it's. We've been usually in the first few years of the show, we've been playing it really coy with our guests. A lot of that was to hide the fact that we didn't exactly know what was coming up next week. And we were, <laughs> we were recording uh, essentially like uh, two two people laying the track down before the, the train uh, was mm-hmm. upon us. Um, we've recorded this episode and uh, and I think it's safe to say that we can announce that it is Issa Lopez returning to the KingCast stage. Yes. Ahead of her the debut of her new season of True Detective. And while we are embargoed out the ass on that, oh my God, I can say, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, get excited, um, people. Get excited. And, uh, you know, and this one, it, it was kind of rolled into you know kind of her press schedule for uh mm-hmm. for true detective so i will warn you up front it's a little shorter than your typical king cast episode but we still get what about 45 minutes with her um and it's it turns into less of a focused king cast discussion and more you know of a stephen king title and more on stephen king's general influence on her on her work on her writing and what she brought into true detective uh, that she learned from yeah. king so and she so. is, as always, a fucking delight. Uh, I, oh, could yeah. just li- I could listen to Issa Lopez read the phone book. Ugh. Amazing voice. Yep. It, it, it's slightly shorter than typical, but it's also... Uh, it's just got a where it counts, man. So it's it's packed yeah. to the brim. Lots of true detective talk. Uh, uh, not super spoilery, by the way. So you can listen to this before the show uh, debuts, yes. and you'll have to because it, the show doesn't come out until the fourteenth, and I think this drops on the tenth. 
So don't worry, we don't spoil shit about the show, but it's uh, you get a good insight into her creative process. She's wonderful and uh, can't wait for y'all to hear it. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, I guess that's it. Yeah. Happy New All Year, right. everybody. Happy New Year, everyone. Uh, let's make it count. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and on that note, we will see y'all on Friday for uh, with Charles Promesco for another deep dive into 1922 and next week on the main feed for Miss Issa Lopez. Adios, folks. Bye. The KingCast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Andley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director, and editing is done by yours truly. <laughs>